Welcome to Crossroads Church in Rowlett. We're so glad you're here. Join us here for our weekly sermons or visit crossroadsrowlett.org for more information. Uh, how many of you guys are old enough to remember a Sadie Hawkins dance? Okay. Um, let me tell you something. If you don't know what that is, back in the day, they would always do this thing where, like, it was this dance where, like, the girls were supposed to ask the guys out. Well, when I was in middle school, they did a Sadie Hawkins dance. Um, they decided to do something, and maybe you've heard this. It was a popular thing for a while. And what they did was they made two lines when you were kind of, like, uh, out, like, doing PE or whatever. And the first line was all the guys. And the second line was all the girls. And they'd say go twice. So they'd say go at the beginning and all the guys would take off. Then they'd say go and all the girls would take off. And whatever guy the girl caught, that's who she went to the date, to dance with. Yeah, so I have always been uh, uh, classically known as a guy with great personality. Like that's, that's been my MO for a long time. And so I was very surprised that like the cutest girl in our school um, intentionally put herself behind me. And she made it known she was going to go to the dance with me. Now, if I was smart... I would have tripped and fell two feet after they said go and just made it easy for her to just go, oh, you're going with me. But real quick, how many of you in here have a problem being overly competitive? Yeah. Okay, so that was me. Like, like I know it because some of you guys had game night this weekend and you're still mad at each other. Like, like you've just got competition that runs through your veins. And so for me, um, I, I didn't, I, I just, that competitive streak kept, kicked in. And so when they said, go, I took off. I mean, full speed sprinting, and then they said, go, and she's trying to catch me. And I should have just let her get, but I'm juking, and I'm weaving, I'm trying to get, I'm doing spin moves and all kinds of stuff. And then finally, eventually, I fell down, and she caught me. And I was glad, because I thought as I laid on the ground, Jason, are you insane? Why are you running from this girl? It was insanity for me to run. And it was her grace and mercy in my life for her to chase me. And that's the story we're in today. It is in the heart of every person to resist and run from the leadership of God in your life. It's insanity. And it is in the heart of God to chase us and rescue us. And that is his amazing mercy and grace. Can I get a good amen this morning, church? And so, I want us to recap chapter 1. If you weren't here last week, you should go back and watch chapter 1. Wes did an unbelievable job of unpacking chapter 1 last week. If you don't know much, I'll kind of catch up a little bit. Um, everybody in the first chapter of the story of Jonah obeys except for Jonah. Um, like, if, I'm going to just ask quick, quick questions. It's really easy to answer. Um, does the weather obey God in Jonah chapter 1? Yep. Do the, do the seas and nature, does it obey God in Jonah chapter 1? Do the pagan sailors obey what God says to do in Jonah chapter 1? Yep. Does the fish obey God in Jonah chapter 1? Who is the one person that does not obey God? Jonah. That's how this kicks off. God literally says, arise and go, and he arose and left. Like, that's the way that it says it. And he's not confused. Like, he's not like, oh, sorry, I thought Nineveh was that way. He does not want the assignment he's been assigned. That's where he's at. And maybe that resonates with you. 
He does not want to go. It's not the assignment he would have signed up for. And there's a literary device being used in chapter 1 of direction, where God consistently says, go up here, and he goes down. He goes, instead of going up to Nineveh, he goes down to Joppa, and down to the ship, and down to the bottom of the ship, and down into the sea, and then down into the belly of a great fish. And if you're reading this story like most people, if, uh, if a guy gets eaten by a giant animal, the story is over. Like if you were watching a movie and you're like, that T-Rex just ate that guy, you don't expect to see that character return. And so the end of chapter 1, you go, okay, is it over? But it's not, because God wants Jonah involved. God sends a storm, and he sends him a two-word sermon, and maybe it's a two-word sermon in Jonah chapter 1 that you need this morning. That two-word sermon is wake up, get up. That's what he tells them to do. And what Jonah is going to find out is something really important, and that is that the only refuge from God's judgment is God. That the only safe place you can go to be safe from the judgment of God is to go to the person of God. And praise God he's not done with Jonah. Now, I want to address this just because I've already had some people that will say this, and Wes alluded to it last week, where some people are like, seriously? We're going to talk about a, a fish story? Like, that's what we're talking about? Um, there's a lot of people that look at this, and they go, this sounds a lot more Disney or Pixar than it does the Bible. And I just want to encourage you, even though I understand that that's kind of a, that's fair, and you, I can see how you get there, I want to instruct you and try to challenge you to make sure you keep this story in the nonfiction section of your mind. To look at this as fact that really happened. And you might go, why? I'll give you a couple of quick reasons. Number one, um, there's actually instances of this happening recently. In 2016, there was a guy named Luis Masquez who was swallowed by a fish and then regurgitated. Also, in 2021, a guy named Michael Packard, same thing happened. I would also say that for people who go, Jason, you understand, the whales aren't made this way. It's not like he could have survived in there. There's not a cavity in his stomach where this guy could have lived and existed underwater. So let me just get this straight. We think we're bright enough to build a submarine but God's not. Like, God couldn't uniquely make this, this, this fish for this moment. Like, you could have been the only fish that— Like, just think about the arrogance it takes for us to go, we can survive under the water in a thing we built, but God can't build anything. Like, I, listen, this thing may, may have had— like, like, it's serious. It may have had some sort of, like, you know, like, like, like MP3, you know, maybe it had Apple Music. I have no idea. I don't know what this thing was wired with, but it could have done anything because God can do anything. And so we just need to keep that in mind. The second reason I would tell you to keep this in the nonfiction section of your mind is because Jesus did it. Jesus said this happened. And look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. For as Jonah, this is Jesus speaking, for as Jonah was in the belly of a huge fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Jesus is literally going to use this as an illustration for the resurrection. So what we're seeing here is a story of God who reaches down into the lowest places when Jonah is at his worst and rescues him. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would just help us as we look at this today, God, that you would speak to us through your word, um, and God, that we would um, grow and be challenged as we dive into this. In Jesus' name, amen. 
We're going to look at some lessons beneath the waves for all of us today. And this is going to get a little bit Bible nerdy at certain points. I hope that excites you. It excites me. There's some really cool stuff that we're going to draw out of this. But I first want us to read it. We're going to start in chapter 1, starting in verse 17, the last verse in chapter 1. And then we're going to go all the way through chapter 2. It says this, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Chapter 2. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol, and you heard my voice. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the sea, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. But I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more towards your holy temple. This is going to occur twice. I want you to make note of the words holy temple. I'll explain why in a little bit. Verse 5, the waters engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised me to life from the pit. And I would encourage you to circle, highlight, underline the word pit. We're going to talk about what that means in a minute. You raised me, you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As, as my life was fading away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your, here it is again, holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love, but as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah on to dry land. The first thing that we're going to look at in kind of the lessons beneath the waves is that when you are beneath the waves, you come face to face with your sin. I love the way pastor and author Tim Keller uh, has this quote. It says this, that no human heart will learn of its sinfulness by being told it is sinful. It will have to be shown often in brutal experience. I don't know about you, but I think that many of us, when we experience the consequence of our sin, is when we start to recognize how sinful we actually are. You see it in Jonah. It says in verse 2, I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered, I cried out for help from the depths inside Sheol. You heard my voice. This word cried out is an, is an interesting word in Hebrew. It's what we would consider kind of an onomatopoeia. Like, like for example, have you ever had a, a sound come out of you that you didn't plan for? Some of you, your mind's going all kinds of places, but um, uh, like it happens in our, in our staff meetings every once in a while. We'll go staff meeting, we'll go a little bit late uh, on a Tuesday, and it's getting close to lunchtime, and then all of a sudden we'll hear this rumbling of someone's stomach in the process, and we're like, man, <coughs> that, that was a lot. And that is, and sometimes it happens even out of your mouth. We're like, something just comes out, and you're like, how did that happen? What noise did I just make? That's the word here. It's this deep groaning of his soul, this involuntary response as he cries out to God. He doesn't even have words at first. You just hear this sound. What is he, what is he coming face to face with? We see it in verse 8. He's going to identify his own sins. And here's his sins. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. So there's two sins he's calling out in his life. He says, one, I chased idolatry. I chased something that I thought would fulfill me and do for me what only God could do. I chased that. And in the process, and yes, these things are connected, but they're also separate. In the process of chasing that, I have to acknowledge that I abandoned my love. I've abandoned the one that faithfully loved me. I am being unfaithful to that love. 
Jonah is calling out his sin. And I would just say and challenge this in my life and in yours. If you are right now in your confession, in your sin, if you're still making excuses, if you are still trying to blame other people for the sinful decisions of your life, you're not low enough yet. Does that sound like good news to anybody? Believe it or not, it is. But I think sometimes we have to go to those low places in order for us to really understand. We get to a place, here's the irony. When you finally get to a place where you stop blaming everyone else for your sin, you will finally be at a place where God can do all of the great things he wants to do in your life. You see this in stories like the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. This guy's going in the wrong direction for a long time, and he comes to one moment, and here's what it says, and a whole story turns on it. It says, and he came to his senses. And the moment he came to his senses, that moment is what initiated him coming out of the darkness and being reunited with his father. And that's the same thing that is going to happen in the story of Jonah. So you can write this in your notes. Sin never takes us on an upward trajectory. I told you there was that word down over and over again. How many of you in this room, you don't have to say what it is, but just by show of hands, how many of you in this room would go, yep, I have hit rock bottom and I found God waiting for me right there? And there's a lot of that in our life for people that go, I stopped running when I hit rock bottom. I stopped running when she gave me the ring back. I stopped running when I lost my job. I stopped running when the cancer diagnosis came. I stopped running when I realized I could not do this on my own. We, we stop running, running when we realize that every, every path ends the same without Jesus Christ. Every one of them. That doesn't mean your sin's not entertaining. There are moments of absolute euphoria and excitement as you engage with sin, but your life will never be better because of it. Sin does not take us back up. Only God does. Jonah says to this in verse 6, he says, I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Does that sound fairly permanent? Yes. Then you raised me up from the pit, Lord my God. Then you raised me up from the pit. This word pit is an interesting word. It's, it's, it's not just a word for a big hole that you, that you didn't know was there. It's actually a word for a cistern. A cistern was like this well type thing. They would dig into the ground, um, and they would try to do it to get water, but occasionally these cisterns would go dry, and when they would go dry, some of them would eventually get water back. Many of them never got water back. And they became, uh, like, they became these places that were so deep People would often fall into, like at night, you're walking around, you don't know a cistern's there, and you fall into this hole, and you realize you're now stuck in a situation you cannot get out of on your own. As a matter of fact, oh, my phone is playing music. Sorry, I have no idea why that happened. Um, so you realize you're stuck in something you cannot get out of. They were so effective that they would use them as prisons and holding cells. Like, if you're familiar in the Old Testament story in Genesis of Joseph, the guy with the coat of many colors, uh, he is, his brothers threw him into a what? Pit. Same word that's being used here. It's more than likely a thing. They didn't just dig it at the time, and it didn't happen or, or, along some, some thing. It's a cistern that has been dug, and it's probably being used as a holding cell, which is why the slave traders that take Joseph into captivity knew to come by there in the first place. So there's a reality of this place that he is stuck in. Because sin always leads us to end up in a pit. 
a place that you cannot get out of on your own. That's why I love the ministries and the heart and the mission of our church. It's why I love that we have a counseling team and, a, and, and we have region on Monday nights because all of these things are an extension of God's mercy to reach down into a pit and help pull somebody back out again because you can't do it on your own. Let me give you a quick theology of a pit. You might go, well, why do pits exist in our life spiritually? And I'll give you three reasons. One, because we live in a fallen world. This world is simply broken by sin. There is a reality to that. And so we all face things that we wish hadn't happened. Any of you ever, parents in this room, ever experienced the reality of having to deal with bad choices that your children made? Happens all the time, doesn't it? Don't get me wrong, I love kids. I have three biological children, Crystal and I have had 10 foster kids. They are an absolute joy and a pain all at the same time, right? Like that, like, like if you're sitting here right now and you're like, I have a two-year-old, and Jason, I cannot imagine life being any harder than it is today. <laughs> That's the laughter of seasoned parents all around you. <laughs> They're sitting here going, suck or give it 20 years, okay? It's, it's only going to get worse. Be encouraged in the Lord. Uh, sorry, um, uh, it's going to be tough. Like there's going to be a time in their life where you're going to desperately want to give advice and they do not want to hear it. And then they're going to do something and it's all going to blow up on their fa in their face and you know what? They're going to need your money to get out of it again. It's a pit we see people fall into because our world has fallen. There's also the pit of grief. You've lost somebody or something, and it just hurts. And it feels like it's something you can't get out of. Or your spouse's health or your child's health has put you in a place. It's, you go, why do these things? We live in a fallen world. That's why some of those pits exist, but it's not the only one. Here's another one. We also, number two, we deal with the demonic. Ephesians 6 says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against rulers and, power, and principalities, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. It is weird for me in church where you start talking about the demonic and Satan, and a lot of people in church are like, whoa, we're getting weird now. We believe in a supernatural God, but we don't believe in a supernatural world? That doesn't make any sense. You absolutely, whether you believe it or not, does, by the way, whether you believe it or not does not matter. There is an enemy named Satan that hates you. He hates everything that matters to the heart of God, and you matter to the heart of God, so he hates you, and he wants to see everything in your life and everything in your mission and everything in your ministry, ministry derailed. And along with him, there are demonic things that go on in our world. If you go, where is there any evidence of that in Scripture? Tons of it. Let me give you one. The book of Job. If you know the book of Job, did Job's life fall apart because Job made bad decisions? No. Job oversaw the funeral of 10 of his kids. Imagine looking out over 10 of the caskets of your children. 10. He saw everything in his life fall apart. And it was all based on a demonic attack. Now, if for some reason that's what you're going through, can I just give you a great reminder this morning? If you are dealing with anything demonic in your life, you are dealing with a defeated enemy. Because greater is he that is in me than is he that is in the world. And so I just want you to know, man, we are, we, if you're a believer in this room, you, you live in victory because of Jesus Christ. And that's good news. The third thing, the reason that, that, that the pits exist is that there's a fall in me. Jonah's pit is because of Jonah's choices. 
that he is dealing with the consequences of his actions. He is reaping what he has sowed. I said earlier, you know, if most of you guys know me, but if you don't, we have three kids, Zach, Caitlin, and Addison. Caitlin is our middle child. I don't know if you're experienced with middle children, um, but uh, there's some things that have been proven to be uh, scientifically true of middle children. They are the best looking. Um, they're the smartest. They're the most compassionate. They're kind and generous. That's what middle children, they're not the oldest kid who's like, you know, arrogant and in charge of everything. And they're not, they're not the youngest kid who's the baby, always oh, the baby. No matter how old they are, they're the baby. No, there's the, I happen to also be a middle child. Um, and, um, um, and middle children, man, it's, it, it, you know, they have, they have a rough go, but that's why God has put special attention in all of their hearts. Well, I remember one time, Caitlin, when she was very little, Zach, when they were little, uh, Zach was just picking on her and picking on her and picking on her and picking on her and picking on her. And it, sometimes as a parent, you have this weird ability to see the future. Where you're like, okay, I know where this is going. And I looked at Zach and I said, Zach, you should stop. Do you think he stopped? No, because boys are dumb. Like, that's what happens. <laughs> and so he kept picking and kept picking and kept picking. And sure enough, just what I expected, Bam! That sucker got hit with a baseball bat in the head. Now, Crystal and I responded very different. She responded like a mom. Oh, baby, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? I responded with, that sucker had it coming. <laughs> I told him, leave her alone. Like, can I ask you a question? Have you ever wondered in your life if God has thought, well, Jason, you had it coming. I'm just wondering that for me, because I know that I often am making decisions to end up in a pit. They're choices that I make. And I want us to understand something, and this is, this is, this is some theology I need to get in our minds. Like, Jonah experiences the consequences of his sin, but it doesn't stop there. He's actually experiencing pushback directly from God. This, who sent the storm in Jonah's life? Say it proud. Come on, church. Who sent the fish? God is the one sending these things. This is going to ruin the Santa Claus image of God for a lot of people, okay? See, a lot of people approach God, and they, they treat him like Santa Claus, like he's this old guy um, that we write our list to of all the things we want him to do that are great in our life because his greatest concern is that I am happy and comfortable. And neither of those things is accurate. God will challenge your life. And you're seeing that right here. There, there is a reality that we have to get our head in. In Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament, it is the Lord, not Satan, that rained fire down on that city. When Herod is arrogant and full of pride, it is an angel of the Lord that strikes him down. And when Jonah is making bad choices, it is God who is actively against him for his good. In verse 3, Jonah recognized it. He says, when you, talking about, talking about God, when you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the sea, the current overcame me. Now, so far, you might be going, okay, where's the good news coming? Well, it's brought right here. We're going to move into point two. Not only do you come face to face with your sin, you come face to face with God. Verse 2 says, I called to the Lord in my distress, and what? He answered me. I cried out 
for help from the deep inside Sheol, and you heard my voice. And there's something that, I, that, that you miss if you don't, like, look at this in the original language here, uh, and that's this. I, I, I don't know about you, but I have different names that I am called at different times. Like some of you guys even here, you call me Jason, or you call me uh, Pastor Jason. Uh, some, some, of you guys, uh, <laughs> some of you guys call me Brother Jason. Um, I was at a con- we had a conference at our church Monday and Tuesday, and I had a bunch of people call me Brother Pastor Jason, which is a weird one. I don't really understand how that works. But I was Brother Pastor Jason. So I've got people in our church that call me PJ. Okay, uh, which I kind of dig that one. It's just pa- short for Pastor Jason. I kind of like that one. It's kind of cool. Um, there are other people in life that call me different things. Like there's about three people in my life that call me Jace. One of them has already gone home to heaven. That is my mom. But, um, but my cousin and my wife occasionally do that. But there's only one person in my life that calls me <clears throat> babe. <laughs> and I love it. If I hear babe, I know who's talking to me. And what you call me depends on the relationship we have. There's another one that happens in my life all the time, and it's dad. And when I hear that one, I know that there is a need for provision, protection, encouragement, love. Why do I tell you that? Because in the middle of the pit that he is in, as Jonah prays, he uses a specific name when he calls out to God. And it is the personal name of God, Yahweh. It was so special, so significant, so precious to the Jewish people. But it's an indicator of who he's calling out to. This is not a God that is far away and up high, that is looking down on the horrible choices of Jonah's life. This is Dad, who provides, who will walk with him and talk with him. In the don't miss this. In the middle of the mess Jonah made, in the middle of the mess you make, our Heavenly Father still shows up. Never believe the lie of the enemy. Never believe the lie of the enemy. He will tell you, you've screwed up, you're too bad, you've made too big a mistake. Your Heavenly Father wants nothing to do with you. But I will tell you that the gospel tells us that there is no mess you could make that our Heavenly Father won't come and rescue you out of. And that's good news for us. He's dad. He shows up. A couple of quick things that you need to see in this text as we read. The first one, this is how well he knows his dad. Jonah knew God heard him before the answer came. He says in verse 2, I called and you answered. When he says that he answered, he's still in the belly of a fish. He just knows the answer's on the way. That's how much he trusts his father. Second thing I want you to get, Jonah knew God's word. I don't know if there was a reading lamp down in the belly of that fish, but he certainly didn't have scrolls with him. And yet, through this chapter, do you know that he quotes the book of Psalms three times directly? He quotes Psalms 18.6, Psalm 42.7, and Psalm 31.22. He knows the word of God. The word of God is in him. And in the moment he needs it, the worst, the word of God comes out of him. Third thing that I want you to see is it says, you, talking about God, threw me into the depths. It wasn't the sailor that cast him into the sea. and It was God. And here's the thing that I don't want you to miss about this. Now, a lot of times we see that and we go, well, God cast him into the water. It must mean God doesn't care. I don't think that's the, the way that Jonah is using this at all. He says that it is God that cast him into the sea. I think it's his recognition that even cast in to the sea, he was still in the hand and control of his heavenly father. The fourth thing I want you to write down is this one is just this phrase that he used. He says, banished from your sight. 
And it's important that we get this, that the greatest pain of Jonah was not the situation he was in. The greatest pain he felt was the separation from God. That's when you're recognizing what your sin does. See, there is mercy that comes beneath the waves, and Jonah is experiencing it. If you want to know what mercy is, you can write this in your notes. Here's the definition of mercy we'll use for this morning. Forgiving us as sinners and withholding punishment we deserve. That's what it is. Jonah can't blame anybody but himself, and yet God's mercy shows up. He withholds what he deserves. Church, he withholds what you deserve. I'll say it again. He withholds what you deserve. Do we realize how good of news that is? This is the reality of Jonah's story. There is no place that God's mercy cannot reach, that it is not just on the mountaintops of the best decisions of your life, that God's mercy is in the valleys of the worst decisions of your life. He is there. I love that Ephesians, uh, the Bible tells us exactly how much mercy God has. And I love the way it's described because it's not, well, God, God's working up some more mercy or God's whipping some up or God has just enough. It says that our God is rich in mercy. That means that the more you screw up and as much as you screw up, as big a mess as you could get into, no matter how much debt you owe, no matter what there is left to pay, there will never be a time when the divine credit card of God will be swiped over your life and read insufficient funds. He has enough. He is rich in mercy. Verse 8 says, Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful, or some translations will say their steadfast love. This is where we're going to get a more kind of bible and nerdy here for a minute. I want you to follow me. This is really important. So what's important here is first that you understand there's a Hebrew word that he is using. It's a special word. It's the word hesed. And this word is used more than 250 plus times in the Old Testament. And it is a reference to God's covenantal love. It's a reference to God's never-stopping, unbreakable, unrelenting love. It is not a contract. Contracts are performance-based. If you perform, then this will happen. That's a contract. God's love for us is not a contract. It is a covenant. It is his faithful love that he will come through even when you fail to come through. Jonah knows and understands this. That's why twice he refers to the holy temple. Why is he talking about a building while he's under the water? Because you have to understand Jewish culture. In Jewish culture, the temple was in the middle of Jerusalem. In the middle of the temple, there was a smaller worship area where the Jews worshipped and the Gentiles worshipped on the outside circle. And then in the middle of the Jewish worship area was the Holy of Holies. Inside it was a big box that contained the commands of God. And you couldn't go into that room almost ever except to do certain things. See, Jonah is crying out for the holy temple because the holy temple are where sins are paid for. And Jonah is wrestling with his sins. In their day, there was a time of year when there was going to be a sacrifice and they would bring a spotless animal in, a blemishless animal, the best, most perfect they could find. And they had a process where they would go through this kind of transferring of our sins onto this animal. And then that animal would be sacrificed. 
and the blood of that animal would be poured over that box, and on top of that box is a lid called the hilasterion. And the English translation is the mercy seat. The picture of this is that we violated a law which separated us from God, and it would require someone who is innocent to take the punishment we deserved so that we could be back with God again. And that's why it's important when you read Romans chapter 3, verse 25, the Bible will use the word hilasterion again, but this time it will refer to Jesus Christ, that he becomes the mercy seat, that he becomes the place where the blood, and he is the perfect, spotless lamb of God who is sacrificed for the penalty of our sins, his blood poured out as the perfect sacrifice forever. He's not blowing off our sin. He paid for it so that we could be free, so that we could be with God again. If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved and you experience the mercy seat. His faithful love is like a rope that is dropped into the middle of our mess and pulls us out. And what's great in this story is he doesn't just stop with mercy. Third point, when you come face to face with God, you will come face to face with the gospel. At the time this was written, the local church saw themselves in this story. They were people who were regularly called by God, they ran from God, and then God pursued them and rescued them. And so they were they so much identified with this story that on what's called the Day of Atonement, they would stand up and make confessions to God. And part of their confession was, I am Jonah. It was written into their confession as a declaration to say, I'm not where I should be, and I need my God to take me home. I need my God to restore me back to mission because I've gotten off track. I am Jonah. So beyond mercy, there is also grace beneath the waves. Real quick, I want to kind of explain to you some of the uh, vehicular history of Jason Collins. I don't want anybody to get jealous, but my first car that I ever purchased was a 1977 Volvo 242DL. It had been in two front-end collisions. It was three different colors. I bought it for one hundred dollars <laughs> my wife at the time was dating me and she often had to come pick me up on the side of the road because that car would only work about three out of ten times a week we were broke so that car would get stuck there it was not great so a few years later I got a chance to upgrade to a 1986 Volkswagen Cabriolet if you watched any movies of the 80s this car was in it I did some research of all Volkswagen Cabriolets that were ever sold in recorded history. Only one was ever driven by a guy. <laughs> and I'm that guy. It was a red car with a white soft top convertible, and it was amazing because sometimes I'd be driving. It was so synonymous with like cheerleaders and stuff like that of the day that I would be parked at a red light and I'd hear some guy in his big muscle car, you know, trying to like show off, crank the engine, pull up, only to look over at the light and be super disappointed. 
I later got to upgrade from there into some other cars. We weren't great at it. We didn't take great care of our cars. We considered oil changes something that you would do at eventually. <laughs> As time permitted and time never permitted, we sometimes didn't make the payments on time because we were that broke. We often didn't have insurance over it. Eventually, we started to have a family and we were struggling. And if you're struggling and you need a larger vehicle, the most economic vehicle that you can purchase for a family is called a minivan or the humble wagon as I would call it um, and it will humble you tremendously and so we got that and eventually Crystal started driving that I was driving a Kia Sophia it was many many years old they're much better now if you drive a Kia good stuff I drive one also but back then we looked at Kias like Kleenex they were a one use and you threw them away the resale value was like a nickel like that was it it didn't matter what it was and I had a Kia Sophia, and it was dying. It was getting real bad, and I needed a vehicle, and I was trying to find one. And a guy stepped in my life, his name is Greg, and Greg decided to give me a gift. Uh, he gave me a Chevy Silverado pickup truck. I drove it. If you, when I first came here, you knew me. You knew this truck because I drove it for almost 16 years. I love that truck to this day. If it hadn't had all of the warning lights coming on, it was like Christmas every day in that truck. If all the warning lights hadn't come on, I would still have that truck today. When I pulled up and Greg gave it to me, it blew me away. He said he was going to help me out. I didn't know what kind of help that meant. But it was a full king-size cab, full extended bed pickup truck, and I could not believe that it was just gifted to me. And there were three things that hit me when I received that gift. The one was how undeserving I was. I knew my track record with vehicles. I just told you my track record with vehicles. I should not have been trusted with a nice truck. It was also how unobligated he was. I mean, I, I didn't lead him to the Lord. I didn't rescue one of his children from a burning building. I didn't perform life-saving CPR on him one day. There was no connection between my activity and his gift. The third thing was just how unbelievable the gift was. Have you ever been a somebody who you don't have nice things and then somebody gives you a nice thing and you're like, I don't know how to be in this? That was me. And I was like, well, I can't really pay him back. I mean, I felt obligated, but I got nothing. I mean, it was not going to be really helpful for me to come up and be like, hey, will 10 bucks help? Was it going to be real super helpful for him? And it led me to a couple of things. And the first one is it led me to gratitude. I was just unbelievably grateful for the gift that he had given. And the second was this. I really started to feel a burden to honor him as the giver. And I found that the best way to honor him was by using it well and enjoying it. It wasn't going to honor him if I drove around looking miserable going, oh, I can't believe somebody gave me this truck. I wanted to honor him. And I was grateful. You might be wondering, like, why am I telling you this? It's because this. We ran, and some are still running, from the source of life. And God chased you down anyway to give you life. And it's not because he sees something beautiful in us. It's because there is something beautiful in him. It's not because we're wonderful. It's because there's something wonderful in his heart. His love for you is not motivated by your loveliness. It's who he is. See, this is what grace is. You can write this down. It's when we, as undeserving people, receive an unbelievable gift from an unobligated giver. Our response should be gratitude and 
that we use and enjoy the gift well. And that's what's happening in Jonah chapter 2. I want you to look at verse 5 with me. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountain. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. But then you. Then you. Then you showed up. Then you arrived. Then you got involved. And you raised my life from the pit, Lord, my God. God owed Jonah nothing but gave him an unbelievable gift of grace. See, there's some things that all religions have in common, and I don't want you to miss this. All religions will share this, whether you like the religion or not. They will share these commonalities, that they will tell you there are things that you should do and things you should not do. They will tell you there are things that you should celebrate and things you should condemn. They will tell you there are things that you should be blessed for and things that you should be punished for. Every religion will do those things. Not one of them will be unique in it. Here's where Christianity is very different. I love the way C.S. Lewis said it. You'll see this on the screen behind me. He says, Christianity believes that the blessing of God comes not after you have done the good and avoided the bad. The blessing comes first. God blesses you when you haven't done anything good, when you have done only the bad, when you're undeserving. The grace of God flies first. The hand of God that shoots out towards you is the hand of mercy. That is our God's great grace. It's life-changing. When Jonah experienced it, he sang a song. Like literally in this moment, whether you realize or not, this chapter 2, there's poetry written throughout the book of Jonah. Chapter 2 is a prayer, but it's also a song. It led him to sing. And God continues to lead people to erupt in song when they've experienced his grace. Let me tell you a story about one of them. It was a man named John Newton. He was born in 1725. His mother... His mother was an incredibly godly woman. His dad was a horrible, mean, drunken sailor. The biggest problem of John's young life is that his mom passed away when he was a child. So he was raised by a drunken, mean sailor. So John became what he knew. He became a drunken, mean sailor. He had a reputation about him that he could cuss for two straight hours without repeating himself. That's impressive. The people that he sailed with hated him. They hated him so much that they abandoned him on the coast of Africa. They left him to die, but he didn't die. He was taken as a slave by a local tribe. He was brutalized. He was tortured. He was starved. Eventually, he lit a signal fire that caught an oncoming ship's attention, and he was rescued, but his heart had been damaged. He was filled with hatred and rage. So he once again became what he knew. He had been a slave, so he became a slave trader. He took into slavery men and women and children from all over Africa. You've seen the pictures. You've heard the history. That's one of those guys. He split up families for money. He was such a bad guy, sometimes he would get the whole crew drunk to where people would fall off the boat, and they often wouldn't even go back for them. He one time got so drunk that he fell off the boat, and they end up using the boat hook to stab him in the side and pull him back on. 
He was a mess of a human being. And this is a direct quote from someone who knew him in that day. He was an absolute monster. And one day a storm came. And it was the worst storm he'd ever experienced. In the middle of the storm, he realized this is where I will die. And so he began to do something that he had not done since his mother was alive. He prayed. He said he literally shouted out to God. And all he shouted was, help me, God, over and over again. He didn't die. He got really sick. Eventually, they kicked him off the boat into a city that he did not know. He was lost in the city. He had lost his career. He had lost his family. He had lost everything. And one day, a stranger invited him to a church service. And he sat in a church service, and for the first time ever, he heard about the grace of God. And he was told in that church service, and can, can we just say, we say these things in churches all the time, but he's going to take a step that I would challenge some of you to take. See, he heard that God's grace would save someone even as bad as him. And here's the step he took. He believed it. And it changed everything. Three things were true of John for the rest of his life. One, he became a pastor. Two, he helped abolish slavery. Working along beside a woman named, excuse me, Hannah Moore and William Wilberforce. And three, he became famous for a song that he wrote, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's different, doesn't it? I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious, how precious that grace appeared. The hour I first believed. When we realize how undeserving we are and how unobligated he is, and yet that he still chooses to give us such an unbelievable gift, you'll start singing too. We run, he chases, and underneath the waves meets us with mercy and grace. If you're here this morning and you go, Jason, I'm not a Christian. I've never bought into this whole thing of Jesus dying to save me. I would just tell you, you are Jonah. You're Jonah drowning. And in that place where Jonah was drowning, he cried out to God and God rescued him. And God wants to do the same thing for you today. If you're a believer and you go, well, okay, well, who am I? I would say you're Jonah too. Jonah ran from the call of God. There are a whole lot of people in this room that have been saved from the penalty of their sin, but the power of sin is still at work in your life. As a matter of fact, for some, you have stopped believing that God could ever use you. You have slipped into what I will call spiritual insecurity, and you've convinced yourself to be sad and depressed and that God would never use you, and I would just tell you there is grace for you also. During this last three weeks and for two more weeks, we've 
handed these out. There's more of these cards on the communication bins in the back. But we ask you to just think about the question. What is God specifically calling me, you, to over the next 12 to 18 months? And we ask you to use this to, to brainstorm and write notes. And then when you're done, when you figure it out, whether that's on week one or week five, then you'll go to one of these big boards in the back. And you can see if you go by, some people have already begun to write on them. And to write down what it is God's called you to. And I would tell you, have courage. Sign your name. Sign your name. So that we can encourage, so that we can praise, so that we can hold each other accountable because God is calling you to something and we don't want you to end up like Jonah who runs the other way. We want you because you've experienced the grace and mercy of God to desperately want other people to experience the grace and mercy of God. And what happens is it changes the whole story. Jonah is in a desperate place. But by verse 9, he says this, salvation belongs to the Lord. God and God's grace make beauty out of ugly things.